Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, Jeff, Alex and I were joined by Andy Mitchell of Green Building Store. As you might imagine, Green Building Store sells the things that you need for high-performance building. So unusually, in terms of the people we speak to, Andy's a, a retailer rather than a contractor or a commissioner or a strategist. He's not just a salesperson and a marketer. He really knows his stuff. So we've been talking to him for ages. He's a longtime friend of Jeff's, supporter of the magazine, ACB member. And in the course of our conversations, it became apparent that, that it'd be interesting to talk about his experience as a professional in the space, dealing with retail customers. Because whilst Green Building Store isn't like a bricks and mortar B&Q style shop, they do offer that sort of a service for people who know what they want. They also offer consultancy service as an organization. They were involved in some of the earliest passive houses in the UK. He's very focused on passive house, but not exclusively, as you will hear. It's worth noting that this is a bit rambly. There's lots of really good stuff in there within the conversation. Like Andy's able to tell us about the sorts of challenges that he's addressing for his customers, the challenges that he's addressed in his own home, sort of high-performance retrofit. He gives us a, an idea of where the, the industry at in this sort of consumer-facing way. I mean, all sorts of bits, to be perfectly frank. And just as a heads up, it's not a short one, but I think you're getting the measure of us that it's never going to be short. Part of the issue there is, and I just want to note as well, this was the best part of a two-hour conversation that we've got down to this thing. So them as who've complained that it's too long, we are listening, but Jeff and I are fairly long and rambling speakers. This isn't a BBC performance. This is a conversation. So we're keeping it as tight as we can, I promise you. Anyway, perhaps I should heed that feedback, cut this short, and let you get into it. All the links that we could muster are in the show notes. If they're not there immediately, they will probably appear post-launch as ever. Thank you very much for listening. You hope you enjoy it. Jeff, have you got your mic plugged in? Oh, hang on a second. Oh, it seems to be working now. You were sounding echoey as hell before. Just remember, you've got to speak into the mic. Speaking ambiently around it isn't how it works. Oh, God. I feel like Owen Wilson in um, in Zoolander, the, the bit where they're trying to get the files out of the computer. Yeah. The story of the computer. <laughs> yeah. How, how are you anyway, Andy? How's business going? Uh, yeah, generally pretty good. The, it, it's a sort of usual balancing act. So there's still quite a bit to to unpick but um overall this year um, windows has done tremendously well mvhr is struggling but we know why which is kind of the important bit we expect that to t- change around but um we're not quite there yet it's it's a bit of kind of a when not if question but we're, we're not quite there yet certainly what is quite interesting in the marketplace is mvhr both interest and demand is is we're noticing significantly going up and it's it's us trying to make sure that we respond well to that which is a challenge with regards to messaging because the, the the classic one that people always forget is um it's the ducting design is so key so you can have a really good heat exchanger and, and fan unit and rubbish ducting and you have a rubbish system you can have well-designed ducting uh, mm. and an average heat exchanger with whatever and, and actually you get a pretty darn good system and obviously at the risk of stating the obvious the ducting once it's in is in <laughs> it's a pretty difficult thing to start pulling down ceilings and rejigging and all that jazz so but but the sad thing is i suppose it's one of those cultural things particularly in the uk where we seem to 
massively undervalue that world design. Uh, it's the classic thing, you know, kitchens, free design, you know, it's all that BS. And uh, and mm. actually design is, is what makes something good or rubbish. So um, it's very important. So we charge for our design. Uh, mm. Which is kind of a mixed bag because it, it does it does effectively usually and certainly with the market that we're we're, we're approaching it the, the usual response is well why don't these guys charge for design that probably not as good is it so yeah. at the moment it's okay but you know there's quite a few um, people sort of trying to jump on the MHR bad wagon at the moment and we need to is yeah. it basically just trying to avoid as many corners as possible in your rigid ducting or or is it something else I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated no it, it, to be fair it's so. We actually use a software, so we take the plans of the, uh, the property and then we design in the software and that will give you not just ventilation rates, which is obviously key, um, mm. but also sound attenuation decibel ratings because you don't want a noisy ducting system. And, and again, there's this sort of double challenge with the market when you get sort of less scrupulous, shall we say, individual just trying to jump in on the market, they end up installing a poor system that doesn't work effectively Mm. Uh, it, it's often quite noisy and then the market thinks MVHR is noisy and it's not yeah. exactly it should be a whisper of that you know uh, but we've had I mean it's been so bad we've had situations we've gone round and you've got uh, radiators rusting uh, on the outside and other fixtures rusting and stuff because there's too much humidity in the air uh, because the thing isn't working properly and you do some very primitive investigation like taking you know uh, uh, the cowling off, and to discover the ducting isn't even connected into the cowling properly. I mean, it's 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 an unbelievable. But there you go. <laughs> I mean, I think back to the early days of the magazine. You know, getting on for 18, 19, 20 years ago, and to the extent that the buildings we published back then had MVHR, and to, to the extent that anybody would be willing to 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 be forthcoming with photographs of the install of the actual install. It's a bit different with self builders, but if it was a if it was a builder, like a, a developer builder, um, yeah. you know, flexible piles of silver spaghetti uh, in the in the attic, completely yeah. with knots in them and stuff, you know, like it's just mad. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Or people stood on it. It's just, I mean, that ducting's just not fit for purpose. You know, it's it's fine. So we yeah. do we do both rigid and semi rigid. We 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 prefer rigid, particularly on new board, because it's you're more likely to get it right, and mm-hmm. you don't have to do the full loop. You know, you you you've got a a tree shape, if you like, you know, you've got the main branch and yeah. then sections coming off. Whereas if you do a semi-rigid, you need to loop every single room back to uh, 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 the, the machine itself. Okay. But it's not that it's wrong or, or bad. It's, whereas ducting semi-rigid um, is is often more useful in a, in a retrofit because it's, it's just easier to kind of get through those spaces. The ducting is smaller because you don't need the same flow rate because you've got the loop. You're trying to fit it into an existing house with all those restrictions, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen, um, we had Kit Knowles on a few weeks ago, if you know Kit, um, from Ecospheric. um, Yeah, yeah. In in, uh, near, where is he? Lim Hall. He's near Manchester, he's based, that kind of neck of the woods. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Warrington, I think. Williams, there or something. Yeah, there was a retrofit of his we published a few years ago called Zetland Road, and I don't know whether he must have used some of your gear. You know, it was the kind of project that has green building store written all over it. I would say, you know, um, but um, he ended up using it was quite clever, just smuggling in the MVHR system through the existing uh, chimneys. So, so because they weren't needing a fireplace anymore, it was a passive house. Yes, so, yeah, you know, place to house the MVHR and to run the ductwork. You know, like it. Uh, is that is that a detail you've seen people do before? Uh, we've seen it. The main thing you want to be careful of with that is if the chimney stack is still open to the outside, because then you've potentially got a very cold zone. 
So uh, unless you're using the stack as a, as a flu, personally, I would always take the stack off the outside and and, and re-roof over that. Uh, and if you're doing a decent level of renovation, then you'd be probably doing a lot to the roof anyway. Uh, in which case, you've obviously you've created a, an an inner void in the within the building envelope. In which case, fantastic, you've just got yourself a brand new service duct that you could run anything you fancy up and down it. Yeah. The thing is, it sounds like a a really simple and obvious and easy solution. But the moment you find one of them, you've created a whole host of other complications from the stack down, which (laughs) you have to start managing and thinking differently. Because as you said at the start, I mean, broadly, everything is systems design. Once you add a bit on, you've changed the system and you need to account for it accordingly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important point, actually, Dan. I think I do find, you know, sort of, at the moment, and it's been like this for a little while, it's quite interesting reflecting on, you know, if you look at the construction industry in general, we've got some very fragmented trades and disciplines, arguably perhaps the most fragmented industry, certainly in the in the UK and Ireland, if not maybe even across, less so on, on the mainland continent, but even so, it's still there. Whereas actually, if you're wanting to deliver the level of performance that we're all wanting to see happen, you have to be much more connected and and it's that space that we're we're trying to sort of occupy more now we, we if possible we you know it's slightly ambitious but we'd like to almost kind of redefine the way construction happens by saying okay what you need is um the key elements that deliver performance by happy coincidence as far as gbs is concerned that generally boils down to triple glazing mvhr air tightness products and insulation uh, and certainly insulation is less of a deal because it's relatively a bit more mainstream but certainly the specialist insulation which by good note we do and then the advice that ties all of that together mm-hmm. so it's almost saying okay let's make an advanced supply chain out of the key elements including this kind of an energy advice kind of service and let's start to try and join people up again so let's talk to mr and mrs architect who are generally finding they they've I, we, we, i'm often surprised at how much they're dead keen on doing low energy buildings mm. they then have a client approach them and say yeah i want to do a low energy building or buildings if they're a developer only to then find as soon as the numbers start getting in as in the financial numbers they start getting a bit more cold feet mm. but because the architects aren't equipped with a narrative that says no this is way more than about low energy this is about health nice to see you've started it this is more about <laughs> health yeah, for, for our listeners, I've got a glass of wine here. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I should have, should have said that, Jim. That's the, all right. Um, the, so it's, it's, the, for me, the architects need help with that narrative. It's health. It's comfort in ways that you we're not used to as a majority population in the UK. But, yeah. yeah. In the UK in particular, we're used to paying for land first and foremost, like yeah. in terms of the, the value of the asset and nice shiny things to make it look nice. Your point about yeah. the kitchen, like yeah. it's a piece of piss to Kitchens design a kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Which are easy to design. You just make them look pretty. Yeah. And the modular. That's it. Stick a yeah. different door on. It's a simple design set because it's not like a fundamental set of systems. You plug it into the infrastructure, the gas yeah. or the electric, boom, done, you're away. That point yeah. about land is really important as well. I think um, it's one of my hobby horses, or it has been in the past. I kind of dropped it and moved on to other hobby horses recently. But um, when we were lobbying... For, I always have to remind myself that we you have different building regulations to us. And I know we we operate in a more rarefied space where we're focusing on kind of best practice rather than 
what's the worst legal building we're allowed to get away with building, right? Yes. Uh, yes. No. Um, but when you're when you're contextualizing the cost of these things, invariably it has to be set against that, I suppose, or even the legal buildings in some cases. You know, particularly in retro in, in renovations and retrofits, where I don't know about the UK, but in Ireland, there wouldn't be as much attention towards capturing compliance in in the case of of works that are done to existing buildings because they're they're kind of harder for building control to be to, to be able to keep on top of. But the point is yes. that. Um, that uh, when we were arguing, when our standards were worse, because our building regs have improved a good bit over the years, they're still mm-hmm. way to go, but they've improved a good bit. We uh, we had all the usual arguments about cost from the construction industry, from the house builders and so on, about how, about how it would make housing unaffordable and stuff. And then I got talking, I was very fortunate, got talking to Professor Tom Dunn from, uh, he was the former head of the Society of Charges of Errors in Ireland. Uh, he put forward arguments for us, very obvious once you've heard them that if you mandate low energy building standards there's no increase in costs at all in terms of total development costs because basically Correct. it becomes a tax on the land anybody who's bidding for the land if it costs extra to meet those standards in terms of the construction costs then then uh they factor that in when they're bidding for the land so that was a key argument for us in, in terms of uh, getting local authorities to bypass building regulations in terms of setting it in, in as a planning condition and then ultimately uh, overhauling the building regs. Um, but I, I, it feels to me like it's a really important point. Like what as a punter do you want to be paying for? Do you want to be paying most of the chunk of, the, of your house price for dirt uh, in a particular place or do you want to be paying for, for quality uh, building and um, it's it, that's the question that gets ne- neglected. And Dan, oh why- God, I- imagine imagine having the privilege of being able to make that choice instead of just having the arse ripped out of you, whichever way you look at it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sake. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of basing Dan here, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Anyway, right. So since we've already started and we're yeah. what uh, best part of ten minutes in. We'll do a little bit of an intro just for uh, a second, just to, to run us in. But I'm going to start off with a call back to last week's episode. So in response to me mainly, but both Jeff and I being flippant about uh, heat pumpification being a better goal than fabric first fetishization. Toby <laughs> Cambray got in touch and he felt a bit uncomfortable with uh, how flippant we were being. So... Uh, I think it'll be a useful starter for us because ostensibly the 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 framing of the conversation we planned is built around how the UK's shite building makes it hard to do retrofit. So the 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 inquiry, why do we not have windowsills? Is oh sorry, why do we have windowsills when they don't in Europe? The answer that you gave me, Andy, was cheap roofs, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, bad design. And so I think you mentioned a few in- historic instances, like heritage properties that you'd seen that were badly built. Beautiful mm. facade. As soon as you step behind it, like hundreds of years of shite building. <laughs> well, it's over and over again. I, I, I live in one. My, I've, <laughs> I, I've got a Victorian house, 1887, I think it is. <laughs> and you watch, you watch the, the 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 gutters sort of supported on these bricks that stick out the wall. On the front, they're kind of these beautiful molded things. I say beautiful molded things. They've got a bit more detail. But as soon as you get around the back of the house and the neighbours can't see them, you know, or the road can't see them, they're just a brick with a kind of chamfer on them. You know, it's like. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. I think it's really useful experience so this week we are with andy mitchell of green building store good afternoon yeah cheers for joining us 
So Green <laughs> Building Store, do you want to just give us a, a little introduction as to who you are and what you guys do? I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted. Thanks, Dan. So, yeah, uh, Green Building Store have actually been going for uh, we're a seasoned part of the uh, the low energy building um, landscape, I suppose you could say. So uh, it started late 90s uh, by three gentlemen. Uh, they were very much the pioneers. Uh, at the time, and, and still do actually, uh, there was a, a division within the, the business that actually built houses, uh, and they were the ones who uh, who built one of the first passive houses in the UK. Uh, so we're we're kind of we've got a bit of a legacy. For, That's Danby uh, Dale. Danby Dale, yeah, very good. Yeah, in fact, so as a result of the development and stuff of GBS, ostensibly today, I have a little chat about earlier. Really, that we, we kind of provide what we would regard as the essential components for high-performance passive house uh, standard of home. So triple glazing, uh, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery, uh, insulation, particularly specialist insulation where you've got those thermal bridges that require uh, an insulation that's weight-bearing, a load-bearing insulation, uh, and airtightness products. Uh, And if you get those four right and you have the knowledge and support uh, of where to put them and in what place correctly, then you stand a very good fighting chance of actually delivering your performance. And uh, we'd like to think we're a bit of an antidote to uh, to the more fragmented nature of of, uh, of house building in the UK. Well, it's really interesting because normally where you find a, a supplier, and I know you're much more than that as a company, they'll stick in sort of, you know, building fabric solutions, for instance, or in uh, mechanical solutions, but you actually straddle the two. Yes. And, you know, in the context of ventilation, at least, you know, that it's not an obvious link, an, ob- an obvious connection, and it suggests a different way of thinking about things. No, I, I'd agree, actually, Jeff. I think the interesting thing is, it's the classic, isn't it, when, when we stop and, and think, I've actually only been personally with, with Green Building Store for about 18 months now, and I had a similar thought as I was considering yeah. joining but the thing that struck me the most is although we think of MVHR, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery, as a kind of M&E type you know, solution, the reality is the ducting is an essential part of the whole system. And actually, really, you need to regard the ducting as part of the fabric because once yeah. it's in, it's in. You know, Unless you go for a particularly kind of industrial look with ducting hanging off your ceiling, which some people like. The majority of people would prefer to bury it behind. Uh, plasterboard and in wall voids and service ducts and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. so actually, it's essential. So really regarding it as the building fabric, and because we know that the fabric plays a key role, not the only role, in uh, getting us to where we need to be in terms of low energy, low carbon, uh, it actually makes a lot more sense then. You kind of do like, um, I, I don't know why you come across me, it's like you do the lungs of the building, the skin and the eyes. Okay. <laughs> Might use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a grotesque image he's created. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw the series Hannibal, but like it, it's some some avant-garde uh, cooking. It always looked very appealing, though. To be fair, like Hannibal Lecter's. I think it's whether those things are, are connected or disemboweled, aren't they? Really? Yeah. I mean, it may have, and there's the key, isn't it? You see. So the fifth ingredient we always talk about after those first four is it's actually the knowledge and understanding that how they come together. You can have a great window, what a link. You can have a yeah. great window <laughs> and a great wall from a thermal or even airtime's point of view. But when you bung that in the wrong wrong place, the wrong interface, you can massively undermine the performance of both. So yeah. it, it, it's it's really, let's join the dots up better, guys. Come on. Yeah, and the same with cannibalistic cuisine. Yeah. You, know, you can have <laughs> Michelin standard. Uh, you ruined those, that, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, that kidney or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's 
Oh, no, kidney. I'm thinking of liver that it's easy to overcook, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so before we get into... So the part of the reason why I wanted to speak to you is because all too often, we don't really think about the retail side of green building. We talk a lot about strategies, methods, building typologies, standards. And we try and talk as much about people as we can in terms of occupants, but we never really think about the retail space. But before we get into that... So on, I think it was Tuesday morning after the last week's episode had gone out with Lisa from Kenza about the heat networks that they've been developing, Toby Cambray got in touch. Uh, so friend of the show, uh, building physicist. He Earth plus columnist and uh, kind of, he's a polymath, Toby. He's, he's, he's scarily smart, you know. Oh, he's nice. brilliant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he just wanted to pull us up on the the flippant nature of our conversation about fabric first fetishization versus heat pumpification there's bloody term heat pumpification <laughs> yeah but i mean he, he he isn't quite so facetious or flippant in his discourse about it yes you're right he's he's, he's, he's more grown up yeah yeah i mean you know we we were quite flippant but advisedly so because the fabric first stuff we've been quite critical of because it, it focuses on the fabric rather just rather than looking at the system and by looking at the system i don't just mean the system of the building i mean the whole economic and political system yeah where if you get into retrofit it's really dear <laughs> just as we were we were can talking be. before can be can be well I mean, this is the point like if you're going to go deep retrofit so to mel reynolds point the other week, where I put words in his mouth to say NFIT can be as cheap as a, a retrofit. He said, well, yes, but it depends. Yes. I mean, it does. It depends how far you go. Exactly. And the, the argument in the case for heat pumpification is really strong. It's like, make things better. That's it. Just make it better. And that presumes a standard, uh, 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 a certain threshold of quality is reached with the measures that are implemented. But he said he wanted to reinforce a few points to us that first the elephant in the room is the grid because if yep. we are going electric in terms of heating and heat pumpification and transport too don't forget about transport yeah well we're talking about what toby said no so, i know but i'm just i'm just adding I'm, I'm just correcting toby okay jesus <laughs> <laughs> but like you know and he, can't, and he can't correct me you'll have to have another right reply at this rate go on anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah he said the elephant in the room is the grid we'll need to massively increase capacity from pylons, substations, generation, to transfer all of the building stock from gas to heat pumps. It makes yep. sense to crack on with heat pumps, but we'll quickly run out of road in terms of infrastructure if we don't catch up with the fabric, because heating homes, leaky homes with heat pumps, will cause us to run out of electricity sooner. Especially so with your, long... your, your antiquated grid. You've got this Victorian fetishization in England. Those, I know your house, Andy, that you talked about living in a Victorian house. You know, you're, yeah, you're, right. you're a minister for the 19th century and as he was Jacob Rees-Mogg and so on. You know, this psychodrama that, that England is going through, uh, I guess it, explain, it, it extends to your uh, to your electricity grid investment and schools investment as well. Oh, that's not bring we, up. Yeah, we won't get into that. We probably <laughs> yeah. won't do that at all today. That's the only mention we need. But he said, uh, I appreciate the lighthearted poking at fabric nerds, of whose club I am a card carrying member, but please don't dismiss the need for fabric efficiency. Yeah. Ultimately, we need to pull all of these levers. And the question is, how do we even grasp 
each one? Like, how hard do we pull and in what order? Which is fair. No, no, it's just a thought. So I agree completely. And, you know, I've been involved in this industry for, for quite a while now. So it's certainly... I've seen enough particular examples of people, extreme kind of, you know, this is the solution. I think it's kind of, it's this weird kind of human need to find the silver bullet, to find the single solution and and sort it out. And God forbid we actually go through a creative process and have a little bit more of an open mind and all that kind of thing. But um, I think the one helpful thing is to say, what are the outcomes that we're actually looking for? Because I think often we get driven down particular routes because it just sounds like a good idea. And we've, we've forgotten the reason why we even started this thing. You know, heat, heat pumps definitely have a place, but th- there's two things with heat pumps, as, as you probably mentioned on your previous, which is you bung a heat pump in, a, in a, a not particularly efficient house and your bill will rock it. I don't care what your COP, which is, for, for those who are unaware listening, is, is you're basically, you're putting energy in and you're getting more energy out because you're using energy basically in, in the air. Um, you can do it in the same with the ground. So you're kind of amplifying, if you like, your your energy output, but ain't going to work on an inefficient house. The other thing, interestingly, if you get a very high-performing house, unlike a, a car where if you stick a big engine in into a lightish car, you still use pretty much the same amount of fuel that you would have done if the engine was smaller, other than perhaps arguably the weight of the engine. Whereas actually with a heat pump, if you stick an overspecced heat pump into an energy-efficient home, it doesn't work anything like as effectively. So you've actually got to spec your heat pump properly. So it's it's this classic kind of, you know, we, we want to latch on to, please help us. Oh, heat pumps. Oh, great. The superhero heat pump has arrived and all our problems are solved. And it's like, no, 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 no. Personally, I think a better starting place is actually not just to think about energy, not least because it, it, it's a bit one dimensional, but also about the other opportunities of, of, of health and comfort. You know, we often talk about, you know, we, we get involved, obviously, in ventilation. There was a conversation the other day so, where someone was telling one of our colleagues, he was an architect, and he said, oh, yeah, my, my home is great. I haven't got mould anywhere. <laughs> it's like, why do you think that means the air in your property is good <laughs> just because it's not a catastrophe? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's like if you've got mould in your property, that's pretty serious, you know, to put it mildly. You know. And it, it's it almost common, feels- Andy. That's the problem. You know, people have low expectations yeah. because they're used to shite everywhere. Just, exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, I, I have this thing about the fact that the human condition, you know, we're, we're a very, um, one, one amazing uh, part of humans is, is our adaptability, which is, on one level, is, is staggering. But the other problem is exactly what you just said, Jeff. We put up with the most horrendous crap because we just... We just put up with it. That's why politicians managed to stay in for so long. But that's my only, my only little jive there. It's like, you know, it's like, why aren't, I mean, I, I wouldn't advocate rioting at all, but there's some serious issues going down at the moment. It's like, why? Oh, why are we just quite happy to sit in front of our TVs and go, oh, that's not good, is it? I think we don't know any better. You know, uh, yeah. I, I think the way we learn, I, one of the things I keep on advocating for, in fact, we're going to be in our next issue of the mag because we have this, um, this feature, a pictorial, like a photo essay feature to ease people into the, the anorakery of the magazine. You know, um, we have a, a hotel in, in Sevilla, in Andalusia, a retrofit to passive house standards, uh, in a, in a part of Spain that gets to, you know, mid to high forties at times, right? Um, yeah, right. The, the, uh, where was I going with this? Trace? It's gone out of my head. No, the point, the point is, uh, it's, it's a hotel. It's somewhere where people can go to take a passive house for a road test. And right I think there. that's something we're missing, you know, uh, to be able to take people in 
whatever, whether it's in, in the depths of winter and amidst all the, 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 the horrors that that brings from a weather perspective, um, or a heat wave. I mean, the idea of being able to experience a building like this, uh, and see how it, how it really feels. Cause I think there's no substitute for that. Like we try and work around that in the magazine and we get some success, I suppose. And, and somebody with the podcast, you kind of try and bring the stories forward as you can, you know, the human experience, but actually experiencing it yourself is, uh, is, you know, is, is the way I think to, to win over a lot of hearts and minds. I think, I think Jeff, again, I mean, I keep going on about iPhones, but Apple have got it right, haven't they, with their Apple stores, just put the people, put an iPhone in their hands and they'll just want it. And it's the same thing, isn't it? Just get people to realize how good a passive house is, or even a, a highly energy efficient house is. And I think the, the narrative will change rather quickly if we can do it at scale. But what you're talking about there, yes, for new build, but all the other building stock, the existing building yeah. stock, which we're going to be stuck with, you can't well, just do that. Like you can't iPhone a retrofit. But you can, you, you can have, we were saying this with uh, Rufus on the podcast about why could we not have, for example, if you've got to build a block of flats or something and you can sort of negotiate a retrofit of at least one show home as, from a retrofit perspective, then you could have them, you know, distributed around places where they're accessible and get people to try them out. I mean, if, if we can do it with new build and have this, you know, lovely show home that's been plonked into the middle of a, of a development, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not just saying, like, let's just, you know, uh, click our fingers and it'll happen. But if we think about it in a systematic way, there are ways of approaching it. It can be done. That's a way to make people realize the impact and the benefits of this. Yeah. I think it's, I don't know what you think, Andy, but, but uh, maybe this is practical reasons that 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 that, uh, that that trip this up. But as a supplier in this space, you know, uh, what better way to you know because if you're really convinced that what you're doing works, and of course it does. I mean, I know what better way to show people than 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 let them experience it and 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 experience your products, for instance, in a real life setting. You know, I don't know. Agreed. Yeah. Well, you could go to the Malvern B and B. <laughs> yeah, as a, a genuine solution, I have been paid no money whatsoever to uh, to plug in there. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but that, I mean that's classic. You know, they're they're a guy that the guys have they've set up. Uh, they've built the passive house. It's it's a bed and breakfast. It's charming place and uh, and to passive house standards. And I agree with you. It's the hundred percent experience. I remember the early passive houses that um, I, I would invite people to, often who were involved in. The work we were doing so therefore it's always good to you know this is what you're actually involved in and you'd walk through the door and people would be like whoa and they'd be sort of staring around as if somehow there was some i don't know special passive house fairy was about to pop up or something i don't know what but <laughs> they weren't actually looking at anything but they and i think this is the interesting thing the reality is they were picking up on a level of comfort that they'd not really experienced in a house before yeah. You know, and it's like we're so kind of ignorant of stuff. So, for example, as human beings, we're far more, we're 70% more uh, sensitive to radiant heat than we are to air temperature. Okay. You know that because you're a summer sunny day, cloud goes in front of the sun. Oh, it's gone a bit chilly. Well, the air temperature hasn't changed. It's exactly the same. It was a minute ago, but you feel colder. You walk into a room and it says 21 degrees on the stat. But it feels chilly. Why? Because the heating only came on five minutes ago. It's an inefficient house. And all the walls, surfaces and the furniture and everything else, they haven't raised to the surface temperature 21 degrees, which is actually why it actually feels uncomfortable. And, and the relative humidity. 
another classic one. The, the closest I think most people come to on a day-to-day is they walk into a room and say, oh, it's a bit muggy in here, and open a window, yeah, which actually is a pretty smart move if, it, if, if, if it's cold-ish, um, because although you're going to let some heat out, you'll get some fresh air in, and the fresh air, which is probably about 70% relative humidity, as that air warms up, um, the relative humidity drops because that's why it's relative. You know, warm hair holds more moisture than cold air. And, and as human beings, we are um, very comfortable at 50% RH, relative humidity. And at either end of the spectrum, it's awful. And then a, a graph that I often do when I'm, I'm doing CPDs and boring architects, there's an, an amazing graph which shows that things like bacteria, virus, dust mite, mold, all that charming lot, flourish at zero or 100% relative humidity, depending on type of species. Mm. But at 50, they can't exist. So actually we're saying, oh, hang on a minute. So you're telling me that I control my ventilation, which originally I did because I wanted to try and be more energy efficient. And now you're telling me I'm actually in a far more healthy, far more comfortable environment. That's interesting. Now, talking about like making people's homes much more comfortable and considering it in terms of retrofit though, getting people's homes to those sorts of standards because of the poor quality of the building stock, which is essentially the reason why Andy and I talked about him coming on was because we've been having uh, in one of our conversations ages ago now, we've been talking about the poor quality of the building stock in the UK and the difficulties in retrofitting it. And part of the conversation was just like, what's the retail experience like in that? But the poor quality of the building stock, to get it to a a stable standard, which could equate to something like the passive house experience, the one that we're talking about, this magical experience where you close the door behind you, the noise disappears, the ambient noise, and the temperature is consistent and all things are well. Well, who who can realistically attain that in a retrofit? Aren't there anyone? Like, be real. Like, that's how it's not an iPhone experience. You can't just turn... a the crappy low rent Huawei or an old Nokia into an iPhone—it's just not possible. I mean, like, I, you know, I wouldn't be the last dismissive. I mean, it's it's a it's about priorities and about you know it's about this, having money to spend on it, like yeah. which in a cost of living crisis, etc. Very few people have. I mean, that's why the the heat pumpification thing is a uh, and the AECB standards are really positive moves because it enables people to make some difference. Well, but it's also about about this uh, the thing that's important about it, I think is uh, and uh, one way that it it helps to solve this kind of dichotomy between one or the other is through putting a building on a pathway and um, doing what you can now as part of this overall journey for the building and then and then ultimately tr- trying to bring it as close as you can towards that iPhone experience of passive house in the end, you know I think that that I find reassuring. Um, I mean that's where the analogy dies. like I like the analogy in other circumstances, but it has no place in retrofit because you can't just transform a shitty old Nokia. But you, you're, you're always going to have the Nokias knocking around, Dan. Yeah. So you need to give people a chance to realize what is achievable, but also be realistic that not everything is going to happen. We know that we're not going to retrofit the entire housing stock in the UK in the next 20 years. I mean, obviously not even close, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> so, but still, I think we need to help change the narrative. And I think you're, you're right, Andy, we need to give people that experience. We just need to make people just be able to say, I went into this house and oh my God, that was amazing. And I had that conversation with friends back uh, back in France last week. His his boss had this house that had been completely built. Obviously it was a new build, but it was wooden timber frame house. And he talked about that experience where he walked in, he closed the door and there was that complete silence and the calm and mm. he, he, could, he could taste that the air was different. And that's a story that he was telling us and other friends that were there. And that mm-hmm. I remember that, obviously, for me, with what we do, it's normal. But I think other people will also quite uh, engage with that story. 
No, I, I think I think that's true. I think going back to your retrofit, though, Dan. I think there's. I think it is a couple of things, though. I think it is education and actually helping people to understand how you get from A to B. There are some there's some approaches that you might want to think about in a particular way. And I think it is also about priorities in terms of you know do you really want to spend a vast sum of money comparative to other things on your kitchen. Or, or maybe, frankly, even your holiday. And are we spending vast sums of money on our holidays just because we're trying to escape our homes? Even I don't know, but you know, it's kind of it's it's like this sort of one sane week in the year or fortnight if you're lucky. But the the uh, you know, it, to me, it is that the, there's some good wins to be had out there. It, it's interesting. So we, you know, you 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 mentioned I live in a Victorian place, and, and we moved in about seven years ago. Uh, it, it, it's got quite a few rooms. But we approached a kind of zoned kind of effect. And what we said was, <clears throat> every time we do a room, we're going to strip it back. We're going to insulate internally um, because external wasn't practical. We're going to uh, make sure it's airtight. We're going to fit heating in. We know we knew where the gas was going. So we're actually going to fit electric underfloor heating in. And because it's underfloor, we're actually going to put insulation in the floor void, even though it's a mid-floor. It's not, you know, the basement cellar differential, mm. which was a kind of... And, and I only did that because I was thinking... I don't want to heat the ceiling above. You know, so I don't want to heat the ceiling in the room below. It's a bit pointless, you know. But actually, a little happy accident, it completely zoned the room. So rather than normally where you heat the house, you're trying to heat the whole house, that's usually the way we've done it in the UK for the past kind of, you know, since the dash to gas, because we could afford to, because it was stupidly cheap in real terms. We forget how cheap fossil fuel energy is. And But that helped zone the room, so you know, this office I'm in right now, which is at home, you know, in the winter, it'll be a comfortable sort of 21 degrees. I will open the door and go onto the landing, and it will probably be closer to 17 degrees. And if everybody's out in the house, then actually that works rather tidily because I don't heat anywhere else in the house. And yet, because I've got internal wall insulation, the rooms heat up pretty darn quick because I'm not having to heat the wall up first. Uh, I'm not but you saying have the knowledge that, to do that right, Andy. I mean, ah, for sure. Yeah, and, and even there, with MVP before, you know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, no, no. So I'm not. I'm not saying that everybody should have done this or not. They I, I'm, doing. I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> it's not insulated plasterboard, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's not at all. It's. It's. But I mean, that's interesting. So it's. It's in this. In in most of the rooms, not all of them. It's about sixty millimeters worth of wood fiber, sometimes eighty. Mm. Uh, on a solid Victorian brick wall. People go, oh, that's not a huge amount of insulation. You know, if you're going passive house, you'd want 200. But here's the weird thing. That's, again, something we forget. You know, we don't really understand U values that well, which is the measure of heat loss through a, a, a building element, taking in all the components. So my starting point was probably about 2.0 for a solid Victorian wall in terms of a U value. If I put 60 bills worth on, I reduce that heat load between around about sort of 70 percent 72 percent if i put 80 mil on i'm actually into the 80s if my wall was an nfit passive house standard it would only be around 90 percent so we forget that we make vast gains on on the initial 20 30 40 millimeters and then if you're just zoning a few rooms that that can make quite a difference sorry that's so using wood fiber insulation jeff does that mitigate your concerns about moisture It depends, yes, to an yeah, extent, um, but you, you have to be careful. I mean, I was talking to an architect the yeah. other day who looked at putting uh, wood fibre into a, a historic building in Ireland and got some woofies done 
with um, ecological building systems and wood fiber uh, was not, in this case, acceptable. It depends on the conditions that you're facing, you know. Um, wood fiber would have been way better than than the vast majority of insulins there. But in that case, they needed a, a special, I think they managed to prove it would, it would be acceptable with the calcium silicate board, which is magical properties when it comes to moisture wicking, you know. Uh, as fairies, yeah. Yeah, as ex- <laughs> fairies, exactly, yeah, yeah. Building physics fairies, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but it, this illustrates the point again, which is, we, we, you know, we're after silver bullets and there aren't any, and actually we need to start approaching things with a bit more thought, understanding, and, and just be prepared perhaps to learn something along the way. Uh, it, it's you're, you're spot on, Jeff. You know, putting wood fibre is, is not a panacea. If you're in high exposure zones, which in, in the UK is, is basically towards the West, you know, Wales, the West Coast of Scotland. You know, that's why they're having so many problems in Wales with cavity wall, because moisture is getting through the outer layer of brick, which it always did, folks, um, and makes the insulation very soggy. Yeah, uh, it's, and it is a, it's a real design consideration, and it's going to get worse with climate change as well. Oh, uh, mate. Which is why, and then, and then, you know, <laughs> again, we forget this reference. That's why houses were rendered. You know, they weren't rendered to make them look pretty. You know, it's expensive enough to pile a brick on top of another brick in the first place. They were rendered because they discovered that, you know, brick is porous. We kind of, hopefully they knew that already. Um, brick is porous, driven rain against that, even against the thick nine inches worth, it, the, the moisture comes through. You put a more impervious surface on the outside. It was lime, so they were kind of lucky, which allowed moisture to dry it in both directions. But but again, I often think we, we've got a, a ridiculous arrogance, you know, these days uh, in thinking that, you know, we're the most modern, so we probably know the best. You know, Victorians didn't have damp courses because they knew where the hell they were building in the majority of cases, you know, and where it was a bit more damp, they put a slate bed in. And, and the surfaces on the outside weren't concrete and tarmac, which are impervious, so the wall could only dry out to the inside. You know, all these references we've just kind of lost over time and just look back and kind of interpret them through modern eyes. And we haven't got a flipping clue in most cases, I don't think. Yeah, but- yeah. So, like, we've reduced – I mean, this is where we can critique the Victorians as well. We've reduced their design, their building design, to aesthetic archetypes. Yes, big time. Like, we like high ceilings. We like yeah. we like those period details because they look bonny and they yeah. signify a sort of affluence. And homes have got smaller and smaller and yeah. shittier. Although, sorry, Dan, to interrupt, but there's with high ceilings, it's an interesting thing. I wasn't. Th- I don't think that was just about affluence. I think that was also about the fact that if you if you're burning stuff in your house, open mm. fire, the crap air is usually the top two feet. So if yeah. you have a high ceiling, you're not dragging your head through the crap air all the time as you walk around. So actually, high ceilings have a benefit. And and and, and a gem of a, a comment I heard once. Uh, by a chap was talking about natural light and big windows and he was saying you need to be able to see the sky when you're stood in the center of the room and I, I thought oh you know what and ever since he said that I've started looking at that when I'm in a room and sure enough the ones where you don't have that do feel a bit hemmed in you don't have the same sense of kind of I don't know just comfort mental contentment almost it doesn't it doesn't work if you're six foot six though it's it's better than if it was a lower ceiling right (laughs) but that is that's like a a, an experience design consideration the emotional quality of using a building not just it's uh the the physical properties yeah i mean yeah 
it's an interesting thing because you know as much as we can admire these older properties they're still riven with all sorts of problems which make retrofit hard yes uh, but again the question the reason why we came up with the idea for this now very long and rambling episode we spoke with vlad uh jeff do you know where vlad's at now uh i haven't spoken to him in a while actually um so we spoke with a, a friend of the show vlad uh, formerly of Miesenberg, who we were talking with uh, yeah it's still it's still Miesenberg, but 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 i think a different company name or something he's related to them somehow yeah we were talking about how we were talking about marketing and messaging around uh, the use of windows and he gave us a little test of sorts he asked us why do you have window sills in the uk again to be clear Vlad's query was, why do we have window sills on all the windows in the UK, whereas in Europe, they don't bother? That was the sort of generic way we were talking about it. What is the reason for the British demand for window sills on all the windows? And I started asking people because I had no idea. Like, you know, is it for your flower box? Like, what's, what's the rationale for it? But the only person who was able to offer me an answer uh, was Andy. Like, you know, why do we... Might have been this? right, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll throw that caveat in. <laughs> but, but I think I there's mean, some weight to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase and I'll let you take over. But, I mean, you said that the the reason why we have window sills is a matter of course in the UK where they won't necessarily in Europe where it'll be a flat front is because we skimped on the roof. The water's going to be running down the wall from the window, which creates its own problems where a sill can begin to mitigate them. Yes, or at least the, the the rain would. I mean, if if it is running down and I want to pull the rug down, but if it's running down the walls, you've got even more serious problems because at least we've managed to stick drink gutters in. Although we, I think we often forget how important gutters are, and maybe we should actually check them out every now and again. And isn't it funny how we don't check gutters when it's actually raining, um, which would be probably a good test for whether they're working or not. But I digress. Um, in mainland Europe, you basically have bigger eaves, and therefore you protect. Yeah. The outer face of your building far more from from the rain. So protection, I think, is it play does play a big role. And there was an interesting one of the guys who works, uh, James Eyre actually, who who heads up um, Lime Green, cracking company that make some fantastic products, uh, mostly around renders and plasters, but they also provide external internal uh, insulation solutions. Again, I've not been paid a penny for that. The, um, <laughs> he was saying he had a pretty much a stand-up argument with a conservation officer once where I, I can't remember the full story. I think they were wanting to put an external wall insulation on. They were saying, absolutely not. This is crazy. He was saying, well, we could extend the roofs. And they were saying, absolutely not. You know, historically, this was not the case. And he was pretty sure that this building used to have bigger eaves. And sure enough, by some miracle, he might just find some old grainy photograph which showed the building. And the conclusion that they came to was it was a farm building. And he reckoned that the eaves ends rotted out and they just chopped them off, you know, because they're they knackered. So, so they no, chopped all not. these eaves off. But Because let's be honest, it's, you know, actually you don't want a, a, a rotting piece of wood. If you chop the rot off and protect the end, you will stop the rot. A bit yeah. like drilling a hole in a, in, a, in a cracking piece of metal, you know, as in there's a hairline cracking a piece of metal, drill a hole, you stop the crack spreading. Same with, same with rotten wood. So they lobbed all these, these rafter ends off to basically, because then they didn't have to replace the whole frigging roof. And then again, it's this classic ignorance thing. You roll on, you know, 50, 100 years or more, 
everybody thinks of course they knew why they did buildings back in those days because they were they were thick what did they know because we were modern and clever you know it, and actually it, it was just simply i'm just trying to save some money on my roof but actually i would have much rather had big eaves so um I do think that plays a role, certainly, in why we've ended up with window sills. I mean, the question I always have is, why do we have outward opening windows in the UK? I mean, mainland Europe, it's inward opening, which which serves two benefits. One is obvious window cleaning. Okay, there are more benefits than this. And the other one, for, for those who are a bit more alien retentive like myself, who like uncluttered spaces, is you can't put a load of crap on your windowsill. <laughs> Why is it that a shading? That's the thing, isn't it? With the windows in, in England, you cannot shade, uh, you're not, you cannot create sort of you know, uh, partial shade for the summer. You yeah. can't manage the heat. Whereas in the, in the rest of Europe, you just open your windows, take your shutters, put the little hook in to keep them yeah. open. Or if you've got something more sophisticated where they all move, the noodlers, you can do that. Whereas here, we're just telling everyone to Stuff. shut the, the, the blinds and create a superheated, uh, uh, what, what, what do you call it, of air? Um, uh, what's it called? Superheated column of air. That's it. Between yeah. your curtain yeah. and your, your yeah. window. Yes, yes, you would. To be fair, that's never been a problem before. But it's a point that's really worth pursuing, actually, because um, someone, uh, Andy, that I think you'd get a lot of joy out of talking to is John Moorhead, who we've had on an Irish pacifist architect who does a lot of expert witness work as well on, on kind of buildings gone wrong. But he, um, he, he talks a lot about themes related to windows that would really interest you are radiant asymmetry and the, the the effect of having different temperatures in different places but he also he had a job a passive house where there was one room that was overheating i think a west facing west or south west facing room um because the design allowed for certain features in it uh, certain external planting um which is factored into the certification and in the end it wasn't and it was a shed building which wasn't built so he ended up uh, needing to improve the triple glazed window uh he talked they got talked to a solar film company and he wanted to put it to the outside of the window but the solar film company it's absolutely flat outright refused i think on the basis presumably the product wouldn't last mm. you know the freeze thaw cycles or whatever the different conditions that you'd be facing on the outside in terms of the temperature change so in the end it, it was put onto the inside and john was measuring the temperatures uh, he was quite worried about the the stress that was going to be placed on the glass because of the temperature temperatures that were accumulating there now on, on the inner pane, you know, that he was kind of worried about potentially kind of cracking of the glass. Sorry, that went kind of a deep kind of anorak there. Uh, do, you, do you get into this? Right. Technical if stuff? it's boring, I'll cut it, Jeff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> is, is this in your wheelhouse, this kind of stuff, Andy? And the overheating, for sure. Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, and, you know, well, we had 40 degrees last year, didn't we? Well, hey, that's going to happen again a lot more, you know, so... So what you were talking about, Alex, or what you're describing in terms of shutters and so on was their way of dealing with overheating previously. It was interesting. There was some, uh, oh, I've forgotten where I saw this now. It was like old buildings. It, it, I think it was only in Paris and stuff. And they had these massive awnings that they put up in the summer uh, over the windows on the outside that provided solar shading. And it, it's something that we're far less familiar with in the UK. And again, I think I think we've kind of lost this way of, of uh, uh, of engaging with with what's around us, you know, we we go to places like Spain or wherever on holiday, and we go, oh, look at that window shutter, isn't that tweet? That's nice, you know. Not actually, well, actually, it just had a practical use, mate. That's the real reason why it was there. And we we've just forgotten how stuff actually <laughs> relates, which which I think is much deeper. I think it's our, I I, I think it, it's our divorce from almost like the natural environment. We've we've kind of lost. Uh, a connection and most of what I think we build, sadly, uh, divorces us from the natural world. 
You know, mm. they they say that if you've got a city where um, you've got a greater connection of parks, more trees, you know, the outskirts of the city blend into the city centre, then everybody, generally the populace, have, have a greater affinity with, oh, I hate these words, but sustainability and, you know, more green kind of living, uh, better looking after the environment that we've got. And if it's just a concrete jungle, they, funnily enough, are not that bothered. But it, again, we're back to this right at the beginning. It's because we've just adapted to living. And, and I think because we survive, and that's the sad thing, we're surviving, not thriving. We survive, so we're all right. Ah, oh, hit 70, I'm fine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're a bit of a ropey ride there, mate. You know, you could have actually, could have been quite enjoyable. Yeah, I blame um, the Industrial Revolution. I, think that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Like, from enclosure onward, living standards... They changed. At some point, people did begin to get, live longer. But like our culture in terms of our engagement with nature and the natural world became, it, it changed fundamentally. You know, we lost our food culture. Yeah. Uh, we lost community. We, yeah. I mean, community changed and then uh, was abandoned. And yeah, it drove living standards into a, a place that really benefited, well, the lower orders generally. <laughs> I was going to say, I, th- I think it's more the, you know, uh, the wealth of nations kind of jumps to mind with this kind of idea that somehow free markets, which don't exist, um, you know, and this drive, you know, prices come down because of competition. And, you know, the reality is that all we've ended up with is is a lot of rubbish. You know, we, we don't, the, the idea of, you know, uh, food, we just, somebody, a friend, friend of mine was was talking about, they were involved in, in, a, in a certain bakery that produces a, a, a loaf of bread um, on mass scale, uh, which many of us have all bumped into over time. And he he said that actually the process of cooking this thing has got nothing to do with what a real loaf of bread was ever meant. In fact, the way he described it was the art of making water stand up. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. it's just this just this crappy stuff that we we consume, you know, and it's all for the sake of profit and, and everybody everybody loses, even the even the wealthy at the top. Uh, the whole thing's Quite broken, really, sadly. Yeah. So, so look, no, I want to, I mean, it might be what you're asking, Dan, but I wanted to come back to what you were, what were saying about the, the retail experience. I mean, you're talking to people about these products and I was just hoping you could tell us a bit more about what that is. And I'm keeping it purposefully wide open so you can tell us what, you, what your experience is. Well, saw. If, if I may, like, so what, I mean, what sort of customer are you working with at the moment? How has that evolved over the last week while, and how are you helping them nowadays? Yeah, well, that's that's really funny because that's exactly what I was going to say, really, which is we have seen an evolution, we have seen a change. So I would say, and I am obviously simplifying massively, but but it, but it helps to serve, and it's true, there's substance, serious substance to this. Um, in that, I would argue that the previous customer to Green Building Store was very much the person who was very bothered about sustainability, very bothered about, you know, the welfare of the planet as well as themselves. And they've done their research, they've done their homework, and they've discovered that actually one of the biggest impacts they have is the place they live. And one of the biggest impacts to do with the place they live is the energy that they consume in order to live there. And so they would come to us and say, okay, I've done my research, I'm motivated to reduce my energy massively. I found this amazing standard called Passive House, but you do Passive House, sell me your stuff. That was the old narrative, shall we say, the old discussion. Whereas now, I'd say it's different. I'd say we still get those people, which is good. Uh, but we we often have people coming to us and saying, I've heard about, I can see low energy is a kind of important thing, 
but I've absolutely no idea what that looks like or how you do it. What do you suggest? Which is which is new and it's different, mm. and you have to change your message and you have to make it more real. So sound bites would be things like um, I heard the other day of of a, of a homeowner. Homeowner, they just moved into a brand new passive house property, and she said, "I can't believe that my heating and hot water is cheaper than my internet." And it's like, <laughs> okay. Nice. Okay, right. That's now brought it. I can, un- you know, most people can understand that. Now, this was yeah. for a, 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 it wasn't in, it was about 100, I think it was 110 square meters or something like that. I can't remember exactly how big. So, an average, average size home in the UK wasn't some mm. palatial mansion, which is the slight irony with a lot of passive house buildings, but let's not get into that. Um, and we need pioneers. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm all for it. Or another one was, was an article actually the Guardian ran in November last year where if you remember, it was minus six for a spell. And they had a picture of, of the um, the Goldsmiths development over in Norwich, which won Reba 2019 award. And we did the MVHR for that. And they um, they said, um, these guys living in these houses, and this nice snowy picture of the of, of Goldsmiths, haven't needed to turn their heating on yet. Yeah. So it's still 21 degrees inside. It's minus six outside, which, which is quite scary for us Brits but I mean that's mainland Europe folks it's normally minus 19 in the winter and we forget how mild our climate is but mm. our winters are more akin to Italy and that's a Mediterranean company country but let's uh, digress slightly but I do think it plays a big argument in terms of what we need to retrofit to as if there's a deal there um but the but but the fact that that's that I remember talking we had a new uh uh, CFO joined the group and I explained exactly that story to him and he'd been involved in building stuff quite a bit and he was like what seriously that's possible so it was just that it, it's, it's creating yeah just yeah. getting people to accept that to, to get their wrap their heads around that concept yeah it's also really the Irish kind of passive house uh uh kind of you know, Archbishop, if Wolfgang Weiss is the Pope he'd be like an Archbishop I suppose um he um he, uh, Cardinal or something Cardinal, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's talked about it as describing it as like you know the cost of heating a house for like the cost of a a, a night out, you know, whatever. Something yes. Like, and but we do need to kind of make more of a point of putting it in these kinds of terms for people for for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, ah, a good, another good one I heard the other day. So uh, this was old Chris Herring, actually. I shouldn't say old because he he is, but he won't appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so he was <laughs> he was one of the gents who set up rebuilding store. And he, 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 I can't remember whether he came up with this himself or somebody else, it doesn't really matter, but he said it. Again, similar kind of size house, 120 square meters. It's the last house that GBS are actually building themselves. Uh, it, it's, it's been a real tussle for us, but we've decided to close down the division because we always built locally. It's been a really good, strong input in terms of R&D, but there's a limit to how much we can learn through building houses. And we just generally did sort of one or two a year. Uh, and it's not something we can roll out nationally, whereas everything else we do nationally. So it was it was becoming too much of a misfit, really. So this was a 120 square meter house. It's called Sheep Ridge. It's the next passive house open day. In fact, we're going to do a little plug. We're going to do the Denby Dale, which was the first ever GBS passive house. And we're going to do Sheep Ridge, which was the last GBS passive house, which is a nice story. But this was a 120 square meter or thereabouts property. And Chris pointed out that if it was 21 degrees inside and minus 10 outside, you could heat the whole place with the output from half a hairdryer. Ah. So it's so yeah, and it wouldn't. This is my little contribution. It wouldn't be as noisy <laughs> so, uh, as half a hairdryer, whatever that sounds like. But it, again, it's just it taps again into what you were saying earlier, Alex, which is people need to understand what's possible uh, and experience, which is your quite right strong argument. Experience would be top of the list. 
but maybe second down is it's it's coming up with a vernacular, a narrative, you know, terminology that us normal mortals, and I'd like to think I'm one, can actually relate to. Yeah. You know, just telling somebody it's 15 kilowatt hours for me to square per year is I'm so just gonna clear what the hell that means. You know, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah, it's um, like you know, values. Uh yeah. You what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The lower the U value, the better. That's about as far as you can go, really. It's like the opposite of top values on your duvet, you know? And yeah. and yet even there, if you're looking at a duvet and you go top value of I can't, I can't even tell you what they are. You know, but you go into, I don't know, some some store and you're looking at the list, you go, okay, well, that, that's got a higher number, so that's probably better. So I want one of those for my winter and maybe I'll splash out for something a little lighter in the summer. But it's like, you know. That's it, yeah. When you're dealing with the data, you can make sense of it in situ because of the, the context and the relationships between the two bits. But we were yeah. talking about energy use. What was it? Uh, the the kilowatt hours per property that we were talking about on Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there was a maximum cap of two thousand something, but I didn't really know oh, yeah. what the period of time was that that was. Oh being, no! That, yeah, he was talking. They were talking uh, per annum. Like it was. It was. Yeah, yeah, but it was even if I knew from, what period yeah. of time it was yeah. being discussed over, still yeah. made no difference. Like yeah. so how much? How much telly is that? How much telly yeah. in relation to my electric shower? What about my lamp? Is that a bulb? It's not an incandescent. Is it LED? Like, what about my cooker hood? But that's electric as well. What does this bloody down. means anything? Yeah. This is you want. This is we're getting back, Alex. I don't know if you have this sense that the pair of them are uh, these English fellas are. You know, I think I was hitting onto something with this Victorian thing. You prefer to be. <laughs> By lamplight in your old Victorian homes, uh, you know, pre-industrial revolution, yeah? Well, I'd much rather yeah. be in a comfortable home. I just, when people tell me about what... Uh, this is the next step from Brexit. You're going to try and go back and see what else Britain can... What, what are the backward <laughs> steps you can you can take, yeah? <laughs> I just want to know what, what, what it is. Road, get rid of that, yeah? <laughs> let, let, that, that's, that's, you know, that's classic. But that's tiring the masses with the, with the decisions of a couple, a handful of people. You know, <laughs> it's exactly the same with as diabolical as as the English attitude was to the potato famine. Um, it, it wasn't the bloody English. It was a bunch of idiots and rather selfish wankers at the top. You know, I have arguments with a great Welsh friend of mine who, inverted commas, hates the English. He doesn't hate them, but, you know, and it's like, no, the guys who were in charge, which bear in mind, you know, I could count on one hand, actually yeah. treated the rest of everybody like, uh, you know, like shit. <laughs> yeah. I digress. I digress. <laughs> in in terms of so the, the, the customer base that you're dealing with now, how are they coming to you? Because we talked about this earlier and you referenced it yourself. Like the, the proposition is a, a customer is best served when coming to you for an outcome. Like I want my yes. home to be better. I want it to be warmer and more comfortable. If someone said that to you, they're going to get a much better result out of you than saying, I want this specific MVHR system and these windows. Well, they can start there, but then usually we'd walk them backwards just to say why. You know why are you doing that? I, and, and to be fair, I think you know the market again. Going back to the, it, it is still very varied. You know, we the, the the main groups of people that generally come to us are architects, are probably the predominant people, those who are actually specifying the design of, of the building. We do get developers coming to us who are building 
you know, multiple houses. And we do get individual self-builders who come along and say, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to build something. My general discussion usually is, look, please talk to us as early as possible. That doesn't bother us. In fact, it's great because we can probably help you, you know, decisions you make further down the line can actually quite significantly impact the outcome outcome that you want. But normally we talk outcomes. And one of the things that we've just introduced, actually, um, it's a bit of a working title at the moment, but it's a low energy design service, we call it, which is it pretty much says what it is on the tin, but 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 it's um it's this uh, trying to answer the question of well what is low energy, so we basically have a discussion that that starts around you know you mentioned it earlier so the ACB new build standard which we say that's our minimum okay if you're going to build a property that's your minimum and that's still twice as good in performance terms as current building recs, so we would say that's your minimum and then head towards passive house. Uh, depending on your appetite, what you've got. Because, I mean, let's not forget, at the end of the day, a house is a home. You know, you, you want to live there. And, and if you've just bought a plot of land or you've got an opportunity and it looks across a valley, you know, and, and you get somebody from more of the extreme end of Passive House saying, oh, but you can't have a window on that elevation, <laughs> at least not that size, because it's, you know, that's going to let a lot. It's like, well, hang on a minute, yeah. but <clears throat> how much mental well-being will you receive from that view? You know, even if, even if it's looking onto a, a garden, never mind uh, if you're blessed enough to have a view over the sea or, or down a valley or something, you know, it's like um, we, we, we mustn't sort of forget that. I do very much respect the Passive House movement, the work that Wolfgang Feist did. I think it's really important. But I, I have a personal uh, question which I continue to ask, which taps on something we mentioned earlier, which is, you know, is, is Passive House something we should always be trying to attain to? You know, what if actually your bedrooms don't really need to be 21 degrees? Humans are most comfortable at 21 degrees C. That's that's clear. For for people who are more vulnerable, it makes good sense to have that temperature as constant and as regular as possible. And certainly if you're below 15 degrees C, your heart literally has to work considerably harder just to keep you warm. But your bedroom at night could be 18 or 19. That's quite comfortable for most. So maybe you only need a couple of rooms in the entire house that are 21. Well, maybe... There's a medium-term or even short-term strategy of saying, let's fit out homes with a couple of rooms that we know reach that performance and are affordable to heat. And then let's make sure that we deal with other elements such as mould and stuff. You just make sure you're not pumping vast quantities of moisture into those because that's that's where you get the mould from. But this is, I mean, the, 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 the pause for thought I have with tackling individual rooms is is the, the risk that you allow a complete shit show to happen elsewhere in the house, you know, um, and, and problems that might, uh, might cause damage to the building or whatever or, you know um it's, it's that kind of thing you know we're, we're, for sure we're, so so it's so there needs to be at least some consideration for that but i think that's that's very sensible and it's also worth saying we see some examples of people doing contorting themselves in extraordinary ways to be achieve passive house with with that big feature of view if they want um if you're if budget is no if money's no object there's usually things you can do to to have more design freedom like that but just because you can doesn't mean you should. It might be that a more sensible decision is, is yeah. in some cases, to scale a little bit back. Um, um, and maybe we should even be considering a different metric. So maybe we shouldn't be thinking about energy. I mean, what if we did the health of the nations instead? You know, what if instead we said, okay, these are the parameters, you know, going back to how do people get their heads around it, you know, these are the parameters in which you, as a human being, have a healthy environment you know it's to do yeah. with this level of temperature 21 this this kind of comfort level in terms of relative humidity 
this level of particulate, this level of CO2, you know, you could condense that down into a more easily accessible form to help you understand and, and shift it that way. I wonder whether actually this, this focus on energy or even CO2, which we know is relevant, you know, we know it's important, but it's so, you know, climate change is so hard for anybody to get their head around. It's not that easy on a day-to-day basis when you're going for your shopping. Yeah. Oh man. Um all right. Well, I think we we've probably talked for long enough at this point. We should probably wrap up. So in terms of folk facing a retail market or folk who might want to engage someone like yourself in terms of new build or retrofit, like have you got any pearls of wisdom for them before they before they crack on? Well, it doesn't suit everybody and, and the main, you know, there's there's plenty of study out there for on this so mainstream generally take less risk and 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 have make less research you know and i would say if if you're listening to this and and you fit into that category uh, i would encourage you you know just to try and push yourself a little bit and do some research because the truth is as of yet the 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 kind of uh, vehicles for seamlessly getting from your existing property into something assembling you know decent levels of health, comfort and energy use or appropriate use of energy is not really there. Uh, we'd like to think we're, we're one of the few, um, but even ourselves and mostly at the moment, folk, we do supply into retrofit, but because of the complexity of retrofit and because of the services that we're offering, we're primarily focusing on new build at the moment, not because we don't want to deal with retrofit, quite the opposite. We wanted to make sure that the services we provide are really effective, simple to use, accessible for mainstream, then we will roll it out into retrofit, but that's going to take at least another eighteen months, if not longer. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I would basically say start by doing your homework. There's an old, there's an ancient proverb um, that says, "Plans fail for lack of advice, but with many advisors, it succeeds." And I think, I think it's not the you know the clear, obvious thing is not all the advice you will hear will be correct. Yeah. So yes, as you start to dig into this, you'll be like, "Hang on a minute, that seems to contradict that, and that seems to what about that." But if you if you dig in a bit, you will find that okay, yeah, no, that makes more sense now. And actually, they were wrong. You know, they were just trying to sell me whatever. Uh, so yeah, do do your homework first and foremost. Talk to people before you do anything. Be very wary of just jumping on. And then I don't know. We could do with we're in the process of almost coming up with a, a sort of you know, there's parity projects and um, other other groups that have done work on this where there's obvious stuff you need to do first. So funnily enough, you know, windows and ventilation are a bloody good starting point mm. um, because once they're in place, you can follow up with air tightness and stuff. If you do your air tightness and then you're trying to sort out a ventilation system, you're fighting against some big I, issues. I, I should ask you, at the risk of extending things, um, there's an I'll obvious... I'll shut you down if it takes too long, Shut up. There's an obvious thing that I should have uh, <laughs> asked you about, which is um, this fixation you have in the UK with putting trickle vents in your windows. Oh, oh, let's go. No, no, no. We're not talking well, about windows and ventilation. No, 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 no. We're not opening that can of worms. That's half an hour's conversation. Okay. Well, like, no, not for real. Stick a hole in to say, don't do it. Yes. Like, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, I'll well, don't call. do it in as much as, you know, I mean, it breaks our heart. We, so we sell. So sometimes if it's a, if it's a, um, a replacement window and somebody comes along and says, oh, I need a trickle vent. So you're selling them. This amazing high-performance window with a hole in the top of it, you know, it's a bit bonkers. So what we would usually say these days is, look, guys, buy the window, 
seriously consider ventilation, but at the very least, rather than banging a hole in your window, why don't you pop a hole in your wall? It doesn't take long, you know, especially when all that muck's going on with your window change anyway. And then put um, an, a nice little uh, vent, because it doesn't have to be uh, controlled by any power or anything, say from a Rico, um, that's actually controlled by the relative humidity. So, and it, it's 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 genius piece of kit. It's a nylon strip. It's calibrated. It expands and contracts depending on the vent, uh, relative humidity levels. So it only opens and lets air in when it's actually needed. And when it isn't, it's shut. So it's going to less waste waste less energy, and it's not going to compromise your window. And when you come round to dealing with other aspects of your building, whether that's insulation or better and ventilation, you're not going to be cursing the day that you bought fancy windows and punched a lot of holes in them. <laughs> but this ties into what you were suggesting the, the much earlier on in the conversation is invest in good design, like yeah. design, good design and specification as a consequence of systems design will yeah. save you money, heartache, labor, all in the long term. In in much the same way, designing a passive house means you don't have to include a heating system. So you yeah. save money because it's a clever design. You can yeah. find similar benefits just by thinking differently and coherently the amount of incoherence in building it never fails to beggar one's belief um all right anything to plug we will include uh a link presuming you provide us with one uh to those open days and yep. links to the green building store etc anything nice. else to plug well the passive house conference is coming up uh in october so and get yourselves up to edinburgh you're going to be are you, Andy. Are you, I know that you're sponsoring the conference, the ACB conference too. I was about to mention ACB as well. <laughs> uh, are you? Are, you're personally going to be there, aren't you? As well. I am personally going to be there. Are you good? Yeah. Oh, just yeah. anybody wants to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> good reason to now. Over the last week, uh, another listener emailed us to correct Jeff's pronunciation of Todmorden. However, um, <laughs> I would counsel that. The Brits amongst us, uh, we should think about our pronunciation of uh, Irish names and places similarly. Yeah, so Southern Ireland, as some English people call us. Oh, I'm forever <laughs> correcting people about that. It is, it, I mean, I use it advisedly because it pisses Jeff off. Yeah. Uh, like <laughs> referring to the landmass he uh, inhabits as part of the British Isles, which on a technicality it is, and it's one that infuriates him. That's <laughs> fine. I don't care. <laughs> you can tell by his face that he doesn't care, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Right. Um, in that case, nice. unless anyone thinks of anything else, um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh as ever, if you so listeners, if you get anything out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. Please give us five star ratings on all the platforms. Apparently, only five stars makes a difference. And if you don't want to, don't. That's also fine. Give us a shout if you need any help with strategy, marketing, messaging, research, all of the things. We do all sorts. So that's ZAP at eiux.agency or any of our names, Dan, Jeff, or Alex at zeroambitions.partners. Join the IGBC, the AECB, and ACAN if that's your thing. Passive House Plus. There's a new issue out that we mentioned before. So check them out, subscribe, and advertise yeah. as well. That's an important thing. Jeff, are you still looking for sponsorship for the AECB conference? I think we're just about getting there, to be honest. Um, yeah. Uh, All right, too late. Um, 
Belting. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Andy. Um, yeah, thanks, Andy. Been... My pleasure. Cool. All right. Um, cheers. Bye. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>